Hi, and welcome to FT Weekend. I'm Lila Raptopoulos. We're starting this show with an ask. We're preparing for a fun end-of-year episode for you, and we really want you to be part of it. Every December, the FT does these predictions for the following year. They're called Forecasting the World, where FT experts and readers predict what's going to happen in the next 12 months. Here at FT Weekend, the podcast, instead of your oil price predictions, we want your cultural predictions. Or really, we want your cultural wish list. What do you hope will happen culturally in 2022? Do you want Sally Rooney to write a screenplay? Do you want a Beyonce-Greta Thunberg collab? Do you want the noodles of Shanxi, China to take over the world? I've invited a special guest, FT Magazine editor Matt Vela, and we'll chat through your predictions and any questions you have for him or for me. We want this to be global and fun and a little weird. So if you think we won't know the cultural reference you're talking about, just send it anyway. The best way to do all this is to send us a voice note. Open your voice memo app, record a voice note, and then email it to ftweekend at ft.com. We've put all the details in the show notes. And you can write us too, but I promise your voice is beautiful and we really want to hear your audio notes. I'm also giving you a deadline. It's next Sunday, December 12th at the latest. This weekend, we're talking about new ways to see old things. First, we have the director Pablo Lorraine, who just came out with the film Spencer about Princess Diana. I know it's another biopic about Princess Diana. We've counted about 11 since 1982. But this one really does feel different. Lorraine doesn't even believe in biopics. I actually don't think that biopics can exist. I think it's a bit of a fantasy. I don't think you can actually film someone's life. Then we go with political editor George Parker into the British House of Lords, an arcane but important legislative body that's gone remarkably under the radar, even in Britain. 92 seats in the House of Lords are reserved for people entirely by virtue of their birthright. I think most people don't know about it. But let's start with Pablo Lorraine. So our film reviewer, Danny Lee, described Pablo Lorraine recently as one of the most consistently interesting directors in cinema today. He wrote a piece about him last year, and I've put it in the show notes. Lorraine is known for taking on iconic historical figures. His 2016 film Neruda on Chile's communist love poet Pablo Neruda was the first of three like it. This film, Spencer, just out, already has Oscar buzz. And I learned about it a few months ago, actually, from our deputy arts editor, Raf Abraham. There are a whole load of films coming up, including Spencer, which is a biopic of Lady Diana. Uh, mm. Starring Kristen Stewart, which is really intriguing casting for one thing. Yeah. And it's made by Pablo Larraín, who's this Chilean director, made Jackie and made a kind of really fascinating, unconventional biopic of Jackie Kennedy. Yes, I loved Jackie. Oh, that'll be interesting. I think it's safe to say that Spencer will be a very different beast to anything we've seen before. Raf was right. It is not your usual biopic. The entire film takes place over three days at Sandringham Castle in 1991. Diana and Charles's marriage is already strained, but they haven't split up yet. It's written by Stephen Knight, and it opens with the line, A fable from true tragedy. So we know going in that this is probably fiction. Tell them I'm not well! Diana. There's a scene where Diana eats her own pearls and another where she throws herself down a banister of stairs but comes out alive. So it's not your average film about the royal family. And I wanted to know, bigger picture, what is Lorraine doing creatively? 
And why is he running towards people who are so ubiquitous when most filmmakers would run away? I was invited by another filmmaker called uh, Darren Aronofsky to do a movie called Jackie. Mm -hmm. After we did that movie, I realized that I've, I've found a tone and I've found a way to approach, uh, you know, certain figures of history. And Diana came up as an interesting idea. It was obviously tricky and, and there's so much around, around her figure and legacy, but there's an incredible mm. human material in her life. Lorraine's films are sort of like snapshots. They're intimate portraits that often take place over a few days or a few months. Taking on Diana, it's a big, <laughs> it's a big endeavor. How did you decide what would be part of the story and what wouldn't? Once you know that it's so compressed in just a few days, you know that your story is very intimate. And that is very healthy for the process. Yeah. What you can do is just to approach someone's sensibility. And, and that was very exciting. This moment of an internal realization of, of Diana, the revelation that she could basically be herself, be who she wanted to be, and, and just basically walk away from that family. And, and it's a very simple gesture, and it's very complicated and difficult to do, of course. But once you know that, then, then you have something to embrace and you have something to, something to say about it. One piece of advice Lorraine follows for crafting narrative is to start as late in a story as possible. In Neruda, Pablo Neruda is already world famous. The film is about the weeks he goes into hiding from the Chilean government. In Jackie, it's about the days after JFK dies. In Spencer, Diana's already itching to get out. I'm not inventing the wheel here. There's a lot of theater and movies that deal with that. And sometimes a, a beautiful and more poetic way to explore certain acts or events are in the aftermath, right? In, mm. and, and dealing with the consequence instead of the, the thing itself. We, mm. we never see a big fight about this subject matter with Charles or with the Queen. We don't see things, but we know that those things have already happened. It's like a stain. It's like a rust. It, it already has something that you're not saying, you're not talking about, but you're charged with that. And it makes you more active. That's what I think it is. It's like when, when you're yeah. seeing something that already happened, then you wonder what happened. So you have, mm. you, you have clues that, that can help you to build that past. But it's never perfect. And it's, it's always fragile. And what is what happens finally, I think, is that it's the audience that would complete it throughout what they know, throughout what they think they know, and mm -hmm. through who they are. You know, and, and mm. their moral standards, ethical standards, education, you name it. So it, it's, more, it's a more active audience instead of exploring something that is so digested, I think. You know, it was interesting with, with watching her. I found it, a lot of it sort of hard to watch. I, 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 not in a bad way, but I felt myself fluctuating kind of between sympathizing with her suffering and what we've all put her through. I kept thinking, God, we've, <laughs> did we do this? And just also getting exasperated with her, yeah. wanting her to pull out of it a little and not let it get to her, feeling almost like I had a friend say that she was sort of annoying sometimes, and I feel like a bad feminist or something saying that, but she was complicated. I'm used to just fully sympathizing with Diana and depictions of her. And in this one, I was going in and out, ultimately feeling kind of like she wanted two things at the same time. She wanted like to be loved. She wanted 
to not be watched. It's hard to want both. Yeah, that's exactly the paradox. Yeah. I think it's interesting when cinema can create a crisis on empathy and can make you feel sometimes that you're closer. But ultimately, I think you get to understand that she's the sum of her paradoxes too. The things that she wanted to avoid from herself were also the things that made her great mm-hmm. and vice versa. And also I think she was a, a very psychological stressed moment. And when people is suffering, sometimes it's hard to empathize with them because they're, they're hard to understand. Maybe you want to, you want to help that person. Maybe you want to try to find a solution, mm-hmm. but feeling exactly what that person is feeling, it's hard because it's, it's another person. And that, that's what, what I think cinema can do so beautifully, which to somehow start as a witness of that emotion and then eventually become part of it. They are circling us. Didn't you know? Don't you read? It seems they're circling just me. Not you. Just me. The thing is, Diana, there has to be two of you. You know, there's, there's two of me, there's two of father, two of everyone. There's the real one and the one they take pictures of. You have to be able to make your body do things you hate. That you hate? Yes. I was thinking about what the common thread was, you know, like, Neruda, you have a line that says he's the king of love. He was an icon. He had stadiums of tens of thousands of people to listen to poetry. And Jackie Kennedy, she was a cultural icon. And Diana, and there were all these people that we kind of loved deeply, but there was a lot to them we didn't know, no matter how many things we write about them or how much we try. I guess the question is, what makes someone interesting to you? What makes them worth exploring? That is a good question, but it's, I guess it's, it's based on the desire to know and understand more that person. There's obviously admiration, mm-hmm. but I guess the most relevant element is that you would never know who that person was. Yeah. It's not possible. I, you know, after years of the process of this movie, believe me that I had no idea who Diana was. And, and I see all these royal experts <laughs> saying things uh, because it was like this, it was like that. It was like, look, it's a very hard thing to do, to appropriate someone's life and legacy and identity. That's what I insist so much that it's not what we do because I don't think it's possible. Mm-hmm. But I don't know, there's Diana's bodyguard came up a few days ago saying that he felt that Kristen really nailed it. Wow, cool. And that was very interesting because that person probably was really close to her and, and knew her better than a lot of people. Mm-hmm. But but I guess the biggest motivation, going back to your question, is um, is the enigma, you know, mm-hmm. of that person. That you're chasing some something that it would never be describable. Mm-hmm. And the exercise of doing that can create beautiful art, I think. Lorraine plans to do one more of these films about a woman in public life, but he wouldn't tell me who it was. Lorraine's art is so interesting, partially because he's an outsider, imagining and playing with what it might be like on the inside. And when you approach things as an outsider, things can look odd and arresting. My lords and members of the House of Commons. 
For example, the Queen of England opening Parliament, which happens twice a year. The Duke of Edinburgh and I look forward to our tour of Caribbean countries next spring. By the way, this recording is from 1993. But yes, the Caribbean island Barbados did split from the British crown this week. And instead of the Queen, it proclaimed Rihanna a national hero. We therefore present to you the designee for National Hero of Barbados, Ambassador Robin Rihanna Fenty. May you continue to shine like a diamond. I love that. Congratulations, Rihanna. Anyway, it turns out our head of audio, Cheryl Brumley, who hails from Florida, was there at a Queen's opening of Parliament back in 2008. She actually interned in the House of Lords, which is the UK's upper house of Parliament. So when you started, how much did you know about, like, the pomp and circumstance of the House of Lords? Oh, nothing. Nothing, like, beyond the sort of stereotypes of it. But beyond that, I didn't know anything. I was just, like, really excited to have an internship in Parliament. It just was, like, the most British thing I could be doing. The House of Lords is sometimes compared to the U.S. Senate, but it's not really like the Senate at all. For one, its members aren't elected. We'll get into that in a minute. Two, they're called Lords and Ladies. And sometimes they hold other titles. And I remember it's the first time I ever saw the word Viscount, like used outside of like a storybook. Um, (laughs) Of course, at the time I pronounced it in my head as Viscount. Cheryl has hung on to a box of mementos from her time there. It's got some business cards, a few letters. But the most interesting item is actually a program, an order of events from that opening of Parliament she went to. Can you read a little bit of it? Yeah, okay, so... 10.30, the doors are closed to the public. Around 10.52, the gentlemen at arms proceed to the prince's chamber. You have the Maltravers Herald Extraordinary. Don't know what that is. I think it's just people (laughs) in fancy clothes. Yeah. You had the Sword of the State. An actual sword? I have no idea. The General (laughs) Lord Walker of Aldringham was the Sword of the State. Cheryl remembers how surreal it was to be in the same place as the Queen. And I remember walking in. I felt so proud that day to just kind of walk in. It was a kind of a cold December day. Mm-hmm. And then you're sort of led into the Royal Gallery, which is really this like very grand room just outside the House of Lords chamber. And then you're sort of standing up and sort of waiting for the Queen to kind of come in through the robing room. And then she comes in and she's wearing like the robe, which is actually just like a really long red robe that sort of stretches in a train and there's four boys behind her sort of carrying it. Right. I'm looking at a photo from the state opening of Parliament and the red robe, it really is, it's like the platonic ideal of royalty. Yeah. And the robe sort of has, um, the clasp at the front is like very sort of 90s, Yes. Like hip hop star kind of <laughs> like it's a very big kind of gold chain actually. It is. I just was thinking I'll never be able to kind of decode what's going on here. At least not through like my American eyes. Cheryl still feels that way, despite having lived in the UK for more than a decade. About the Queen, about the Viscounts, all of it. That said, the House of Lords is something that even most British people don't talk about much or understand. The fact that there's an entire chamber in one of the oldest democracies in the world that's entirely unelected. And not only that, about 10% of that chamber inherits their seat from their ancestry. You won't be surprised to hear that all of those 10% are white men of a certain age. And once they're in, they're in for life. 92 seats in the House of Lords are reserved for people entirely by virtue of their 
birthright. This is George Parker. He's the FT's political editor. A few weeks ago, he wrote a story about the House of Lords and um, why it's still a thing. In other words, they're aristocrats who've inherited mm. their titles and their rights to sit in the House of Lords from people who maybe sprung to prominence hundreds and hundreds of years ago. 92 out of? Out of about 800 altogether. And right. the, the rest of the House of Lords is made up mainly of people appointed by political leaders, often by the Prime Minister. So they're often cronies of the Prime Minister, donors to, to political parties, mm-hmm. former MPs who you need to move out of their seats to, to clear the way for <laughs> someone else to come in. And along with some quite expert people as well, to be fair, you have experts in their field, people like lawyers, doctors, film directors, athletes, you know, who go and sit in the House of Lords and bring their expertise to a revising chamber. The House of Lords is a revising chamber. By that, he means the House of Commons will draft legislation and the Lords will review, give feedback, stall, send back and ultimately approve it. Lords, I beg to move that this report be now received. The question is that this report be now received. As many as I have that opinion will say content. Can't we not content? The content sound. They don't write the laws and they have less power than the House of Commons, but they still have some power and they still exist. With the piece coming out, the response was wild. You had about 400 comments. People feel very, very strongly about this. I think the, the overarching thing was that people just weren't really aware this was going on. And I have to confess, as someone who's been political editor of the Financial Times for quite a long time now, it's something I've never written about before. The aristocracy in the House of Lords are really a branch of this whole kind of feudal system which has persisted, you know, for the best part of a thousand years in, in the United Kingdom. So hopefully at least this has started something of a debate on it. I saw the House of Lords in chamber once. Um, I went to see the House of Commons and then they suggested that I stay to check out the House of Lords. And the level of enthusiasm was drastically different <laughs> between <laughs> the two experiences. Um, I think that one of the Lords was asleep. It was like an after lunch <laughs> experience. Well, you're right that the House of Lords has a different pace to the House of Commons. And some people regard it as one of the best clubs in London. You have uh, subsidised food, subsidised drinks in the bar, some very nice uh, leather armchairs to have a doze in, including leather armchairs in the House of Lords chamber itself, as you will, you, you observed. It's an ornate place, sort of gold and red, a uh, very different atmosphere, as you say, to the House of Commons. Uh, my Lords, um, I, I don't want to uh, detain the House I- I- in any way, but... Um, uh, no, seriously. Within the House of Lords, the average age is 71. We're going by some ancient English laws here, and one of them says that hereditary titles can only be passed down to the oldest son. So the fact that hereditary peers are all men is not likely to change anytime soon. Also, nearly half went to the same exclusive boarding school, Eton College. Which incidentally was where Boris Johnson and David Cameron went as well. So Mm -hmm. the class system is alive and well in Britain. It's funny to explain it to people outside of the UK, given that the UK is this supposed to be a democracy. I mean, how has it gone on for so long? Well, it's gone on for so long because it's just too complicated to change it, is the honest answer. And there have been at least three, four attempts in the last century to try to change the House of Lords. And the problem is, to change the House of Lords, it's got to go through the House of Lords, the legislation, and the Lords (laughs) are very good at preserving their own position. And in the end, elected prime ministers have other priorities, you know, health, the economy, you know, other things that are more important to them than changing the rules of the House of Lords. So they persist. 
The last time the hereditary peers were at risk of losing their seats was in 1998, when then-Prime Minister Tony Blair wanted to wipe out the seat inheritance completely and make it just a house of appointed members. Here's the Queen at that time. A bill will be introduced to remove the right of hereditary peers to sit and vote in the House of Lords. It will be the first stage in a process of reform to make the House of Lords more democratic and representative. Unsurprisingly, this wasn't popular amongst the peers. And they persuaded Tony Blair that they should be allowed to retain 92 hereditary peers out of about 700 at the time. And so those 92 persist to this day. It was only meant to be a temporary arrangement, but they persist. So why is this archaic hereditary system in the House of Lords still around today? That's what George wanted to find out. And he found just the aristocrat to tell him. I know you probably think it's just going to be a sort of snarky thing about a bit of Aristos um, and sort of the House of Lords, but... I, I, I don't. It, it, it's something I'm interested in. Yeah. Which is why I'm willing to have the conversation. Because um, I think it, it does present lots of interesting angles. That's the Earl of Devon, a.k.a. Charles Peregrine Courtney, one of the few peers George could pin down. It wasn't as easy as George thought it would be. I started this off as a project that I thought I could right over the summer. I thought it'd be a nice opportunity to get out of London, visit a few stately homes, (laughs) talk to some hereditary peers. But actually, they were a lot less um, willing to talk than you might imagine. The Earl lives in Powderham Castle, a literal castle, a few miles outside of Exeter in the southwest of England. His family has lived there since 1390. 1390? He's not what you'd expect from an Earl. When I initially thought about interviewing the Earl of Devon, I I, like most people, I guess, would have a certain image in the head of a of an ancient earl. Um, in right. fact, he's trying to look rather different to what you might expect. He's 46, I think. Pretty good looking, I have to say. Mm-hmm. Um, six foot five, dressed as uh, most people in uh, the aristocracy do in the countryside and sort of tweedy sort of um, country look. Right. I interviewed him in his estate office, which was you know, quite a scruffy sort of office with metal shelving units and uh, things on the floor and dog baskets on the floor, you know. So how do the hereditary peers justify their presence? We've got the Earl of Devon, who makes the straightforward argument, which is he thinks that the hereditary peers have a role in uh, national life and they have a role in a legislature because they represent continuity to you know, Britain's past. Historic continuity is really valuable. Um, I think it's valuable to remind the house itself of its place and of what's happened before. Yeah. Um, but also, as you're looking around the world... Um, I think that ability to show continuity and consistency and and such is is also reassuring. I'm curious how you felt about that argument from the Earl of Devon that there's a role for these lords that have a connection to the aristocracy for thousands of years. Well, I think most people would conclude that in a modern democracy, it's not really acceptable. I mean, the only thing I would say is that House of Lords is so egregious in lots of different ways. Do I find it more egregious that the Earl of Devon is there than, for example, someone who gave three million pounds to the Conservative Party and therefore gets elevated to the House of Lords? There are degrees of egregiousness and um, it's all very hard to defend, frankly, but I think the hereditary peerages are among the hardest (laughs) hardest ones to defend. At least the people who are appointed to the House of Lords are appointed by elected politicians. So there's kind of a sliver of democracy there, I suppose. I liked one of the comments that said, I started out thinking that the hereditary should go and ended the article thinking they should stay. It's interesting that you said that this is the first time you covered it as 
a political reporter for the FT and that people were not aware of it. Like, why do you think it's been tolerated to the extent that it is? Do you feel that there's like British people who who really didn't know? Yes, I think that's definitely true. I mean, to be honest, yeah. if I did a survey of my colleagues in the House of Commons, journalists' colleagues, I suspect some of them wouldn't have known that this was going mm. on. It's an obscure corner of British democracy. Most British people, I suspect like most voters in most countries around the world, have other things on their mind other than the arcane <laughs> rules by which members of the second chamber are find their seats there. So I think most people don't know about it. But, um, you know, quite often they do good work. And, and actually, sometimes they do actually make some very worthwhile changes to legislation. In fact, the uh, Duke of Wellington, descendant of the famous victor of the Battle of Waterloo, he's he, the, late, the latest Duke is in the House of Lords, and the other day amended some legislation to stop water companies putting raw sewerage into rivers, which was mm. then subsequently upheld by the House of Commons. So they, you know, they, they are still doing some good. It's a mixed picture. Yeah, it's a mixed picture. George, thank you so much for being on the show. This was fascinating. No problem at all. Thanks. That's the show this week. Thank you for listening to FT Weekend, the podcast from the Financial Times. Next week, we'll be exploring our Books of the Year roundup with some of our heavy hitters. Our books editors, our chief economics commentator, Martin Wolf, and a lot of other surprise guests. Don't forget to send us your cultural predictions and wishes for 2022. Matt Vela and I are really excited to hear them and respond to them. I've put the details in the show notes, but record it on a voice note and email it to me at ftweekendpodcast at ft.com. As always, I've put links to everything discussed in those show notes. We're on Twitter at ftweekendpod, and I'm on Instagram and Twitter at Lila Rack. If you want to explore our coverage, I have a few special discounts for you. I have a great deal on a print subscription and 50% off a digital subscription. Supporting our journalism also supports the show, and there's so much to explore behind the paywall. So you can find all of our subscription deals at ft.com slash weekendpodcast. We'd also love for you to leave us a review or share the show with your friends or on social media. I'm Lila Raptopoulos, and here's my amazing team. Katya Kumkova is our senior producer. Lulu Smith and Josh Gabbert-Doyen are our assistant producers, with additional help from George Drake Jr. Breen Turner is our sound engineer, with original music by Metaphor Music. Cheryl Brumley and Manuela Saragossa are our executive producers, and we have editorial direction from Renee Kaplan. We'll find each other again next week. 